You know, brethren, a few weeks ago, I kind of had a, uh, a health scare. And uh, it was a kind of a serious situation. Now, some of what I'm about to tell you, uh, I really wasn't around to know what was going on, so I'm getting the uh, retrospective from my wife. But the uh, situation turned serious, and conditions just kept deteriorating. And so uh, what was interesting, at a point, things began to change, and the circumstances uh, began to get better. And situation, instead of deteriorating, started to stabilize. In talking to my wife about the events of that day, one of the things she mentioned is that uh, she had put, uh, uh, had contacted various people in the church and a prayer request went out. And uh, so at that point, kind of when you put two and two together, prayer requests go out on my behalf. And I begin to realize when you look at the circumstances, about that point in time, my condition and the situation starts stabilizing. I want to tell you, brother, I'm eternally thankful, and I do want to thank each of you who intervened on my behalf in prayers, and I understand fasting. That's very kind and very thoughtful. Thank you. It's also humbling. It just is. One of the interesting things that has come out of this is the subject of miracles. It's been on my mind a lot, and I think you understand, understand why. If I had any doubts about a miracle or God's ability or desire to intervene in a person's life and specifically in my life, yeah, it's pretty much gone now for me. One of the, again, several interesting things came out of this. I was in the hospital about three days. There, during that time, there were three doctors who had been in the ER, each of them specialists, in their own particular uh, field. And it was almost like their comments to me had almost been choreographed because all three of them, somewhere in the conversation, and they came up at different times, they didn't come up all at the same time, all three of them said that they never expected to see me alive again. And so, all right, good to know. Good to know. Well, you know, brother, the subject of miracles is, it's a big subject. And it's something that is uh, very interesting, a very interesting 
certainly to me right now because of this very, very personal thing that's happened just a few weeks ago. Miracles are an interesting subject also because they're, they're not the same for everyone. People don't come to the same conclusions about miracles. In fact, there was a survey done at a feast site that I attended several years ago now. And the uh, question was asked, in this congregation, how many of you had ever seen or received an obvious miracle, one that you could sit down and describe? How many here have received that? About 40% of the hands went up. And so you look at that and you kind of wonder, well, what does that mean for the other 60% of the congregation? Are there no miracles in those people's lives? Or do different people define the term miracle differently? Is my definition the same as yours or the next person over? Or is the age of miracles just simply over for some people? You know, brethren, I have, in studying this subject, kind of defined three broad categories of miracles. And now others may have more or less, but it looks like to me that there's going to be roughly three broad categories of miracles. The first one is going to be that uh, type that's really hard to miss. It's loud, it's public, and it's a clear manipulation of natural processes. Remember Matthew 14 in that uh, chapter shortly after John the Baptist's death. Christ was trying to get out of town for a little bit, went up in the mountains. He just wanted to kind of catch his breath away from the crowds. Well, that wasn't going to work because we see Matthew 13 or 14, verse 13. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them. And he healed the sick. And when it was even or evening, his disciples came to him and said, hey, this is a desert place. There's not much around here to eat, and it's past time, and uh, you need to send these people away so that they can go into the neighboring towns and, and get something to eat. In verse 16, Jesus said to them, they don't have to go anywhere. Let's give them something to eat. Verse 17, and they, the disciples, said to him, hey, we got five loaves of bread, and two fish. That's not going to go very far. Verse 18, he said, Bring them to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass. 
and took the five loaves and the two fishes. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to his disciples, and the disciples gave them then to the multitude. Verse 20, and they did all eat and were filled, and they took up the fragments, and they had 12 baskets left over. And when they had eaten, there were about 5,000 men besides women and children. It's 5,000 men. If each of them brought his wife and a child, you're looking maybe 15,000 people in that one situation. And Christ fed them five loaves and two fishes. An obvious miracle. That's not even to mention the healings that took place. Another example of that first category occurred John 7 verse 1 we see that uh, Jesus was in a crowd and he passed by and saw a man which was blind from his birth you know this story but let's look at it a little closer and kind of see what's going on skipping to verse 6 and when he had uh, spoken what he did in verses 2 through 5 he told the man to get up stand up and that uh, there was this discussion back and forth and Christ indicated look I'm going to heal the man verse 6 and when he had spoken he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle didn't seem particularly sanitary but that's what he did and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay and verse 7 said to him go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which was by interpretation sent. And he went his way, therefore, and washed and came out seeing. Now, you would think that this would be a situation that everybody around would just be tickle pink about. Wasn't happen. Verse 8, the neighbors therefore and they which before had seen that he was blind said, wow, is this not the one who sat and begged? Verse 13, and they brought to the Pharisees the blind man. Verse 14, and they said it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Skipping to verse 16, therefore said some of the Pharisees, This man is not a god because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Okay. I think priorities got a little askew there. Others said, wait a minute, how can this man be a sinner who does such miracles? And there was a division among them. This was a very loud, out front, open miracle. And as a result, it caused some anxiety and angst and anxiousness in the population, especially among the Pharisees. An Old Testament example of our first category of miracle is really interesting. And if you get a chance, we're going to break into uh, the uh, uh, event here and won't... uh, uh, We'll just read the verses that really do apply to 
what it is we're looking at. But uh, if you get a chance, 2 Kings chapter 5, really interesting story about a captain um, in uh, Syria uh, named Naaman. Let's look at verse 1 of 2 Kings 5. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. And we uh, see in the verses that, um, let me, I realized I accidentally left a verse out. What happened is that Naaman had a slave girl who happened to be from Israel. And when she saw the leprosy, she said in verse 3, she said unto her mistress, Would God, my Lord, if he were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. So Naaman looks into it. He goes to Israel, and he starts asking around about this prophet. And he finds that the prophet is named Elisha. So here he goes. We see in verse 9, So Naaman came with his horses and his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elijah, Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall come again to you, and you shall be clean. Now we're skipping ahead to verse 14, but there's a lot of interesting detail in the verses we're skipping over that don't actually apply to the subject we're discussing this afternoon. Please go and read that. It's very interesting. But anyway, on to verse 14. And he went down, dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, and according to the saying of the man of God, his flesh came again like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean, very open, very public, demonstration of God's power. And then, brethren, we have a second category of miracle, or at least as I've defined it. It's kind of a low-key miracle. Low-key in the sense that it might actually take place in public, but it's not for a public demonstration of any kind. Quite to the contrary. You'll remember the story about the lady who had a issue with bleeding, a situation that had gone on for years. We see in Mark 5, starting in verse 23, there Jairus a ruler of the synagogue 
came to Jesus and said, My daughter lies at the point of death. Verse 24, And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. Verse 25, And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood for 12 years, we skip ahead to 27, when she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind to touch his garment, for she had said, If I may but touch his clothes, I will be whole. And straight away, the fountain of blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. Then we see a discussion from verses 30 through 34. And what's interesting about this, this miracle took place even without Christ's knowledge. He was in this crowd trying to get to the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue's home to heal his daughter. And here this takes place. And he even has to stop and look around and find this woman in this crowd. Christ seemed to be as surprised by the event as the woman was hopeful. Interesting. Another example out of the New Testament of a miracle that, that occurs in the open, but it's not really for public distribution or consumption, involves Paul. Paul's one of these characters he, he routinely gets beat up, killed, resurrected, thrown in jail, gets beat up again, run out of town, gets beat up again, runs out of another town. This just is his life. I'm reminded there is a movie, it's pretty old now, uh, that there's a scene in this movie movie is called Jewel of the Nile. Some of you may have seen it. Uh, had Michael Douglas, Danny DeVito, and I think Catherine Turner. There was a scene in this movie where Michael Douglas and Catherine Turner, and I can't think of their, their character names, they were sailing around the world. And they were, they had pulled into a harbor and berthed their boat just off of the harbor, anchored rather, just off the harbor. And uh, the three of them had gotten in a little dinghy, rowed to shore, to go on shore to have dinner or something. Now, in the scene, the faces of Douglas and DeVito kind of standing behind him, very crisp and clear. And off behind them, it's fuzzy. You can just barely make out, but you can tell that there's an image of their sailboat kind of off out some distance. And all of a sudden, it changes. The faces go fuzzy, and the boat out on the harbor becomes crystal clear. And at that point, it just erupts 
in fire and explosion and just gets blown to smithereens. And then they refocus and Danny DeVito, his character, turns around to Michael Douglas's character. And I love this line. Don't you have any friends? I sometimes think that about Paul. I just wonder, buddy, did you ever have any friends? Acts 14, verse 19. Acts 14, verse 19. Then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there having persuaded the people, and they stoned Paul, drug him out of the city, thinking that he was dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose off, went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas. And I don't blame him. I wouldn't want to hang around there either. Another instance, again, Acts chapter 28, verse 3. Acts 28, verse 3. This is a situation where Paul had been on board a ship that had wrecked in a storm, and they'd, he and the crew had drugged themselves up on the shore, and they were building a fire to dry off and warm up. In verse 3, and when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, there came a viper out of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hang on his hand, they said to themselves, Ah, this man must be a murderer because he tried to escape by the sea, yet vengeance suffered him not to live. Verse 5, Paul just shakes the thing off into the fire and felt no harm. It happens every day, guys. I'm used to this. You know, brethren, there is a third type of miracle that I think I'm accurate, certainly that I've defined. It's a quiet event. Very likely, you don't know it's happening at the time. And in fact, one may not understand it's happened at all, except in retrospect. Certainly most of the time not public. It's very personal and personal to the individual. And it occurs in those events in our lives over a long duration that are multifaceted. It's a type of miracle that has, in the terms, got legs. It lasts in events that over a period of time. It's a type that's hard, if not impossible, to recognize except as one looks back over those events. And quite literally, it's a fulfillment Romans 8 28 and you and I both repeat this verse sometimes in the dark moments over and over Romans 8 28 we know that all 
things work together for good to them that love God and to them who are called according to his purposes. That's what keeps some of us going sometimes, is that reminder. It's the type of miracles that as we look back over our lives and we sort through the events that lead to a specific end, we begin to recognize those. And then then we realize that but for God's intervention in the series of events that seemingly were unrelated, that I wouldn't be here now. Before we go and take a closer look at the quiet miracles, let's think about a couple of questions, and then we'll look at the quiet miracles. What purposes do the miracles one and two serve? Multiple purposes, perhaps. Like there are multiple types. One purpose could be, hey, very practically, it solves a problem. There's an immediate problem, it solves it, done. We see in Exodus 13 through Exodus, pardon me, Exodus 4 through Exodus 13, the history of ancient Israel coming out of Egypt. And there we see Moses involved in multiple miracles before the Pharaoh. Then in verse, in uh, chapter 14 of Exodus, then a big miracle, God provided a way for Israel to actually escape Pharaoh through the Red Sea. And in that way, in the danger from Egypt's armies once and for all. Very practical use of miracles. Very practical. It's also a, provides a sign of authority on different levels. Remember the centurion that um, came to Christ in Matthew 8, the Roman centurion. Matthew 8, verse 5, and when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came to him a centurion, saying, Lord, my servant is at home sick of the palsy and grievously tormented. And Jesus said to him, I'll come with you and I'll heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you would come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant will be healed. Verse 9, for I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. I say to this man, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Then Jesus heard it, and he marveled and said to them that followed, truly, I'm going to tell you guys, I've not found that kind and level of faith in all of Israel, and here I'm seeing it in a Roman who understands 
authority in how it is used. There's also another level of authority where it becomes a sign of authority that Christ actually gave to the apostles. Mark 6, verse 7. And he called on to him the twelve and began to send them forth two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. Another example, probably a different accounting of the same event, Luke 9, verse 1. And when he called the twelve disciples, he gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. Miracles also. Miracles 1 and 2, certainly. Are really signs sometimes of God's interest in an individual. And I've seen it in my own life and I've seen it in other people's lives where it's a a sign of recognition that's given a lot of times to people who are new to the faith. One of the family stories, and I see my wife and mother-in-law here. One of the family stories is that shortly after they came into the church, the family was out playing baseball one day. And Beth, for whatever reason, jumped in front of a moving bat that hit her right in the forehead, full force. Her head ballooned like this. Her dad scooped her up, took her into the shade inside nearby house or whatever, and he prayed. And at the end of the prayer, as fast as the swelling came, it left. Beth jumped up and continued being Beth. I remember myself, I don't know, maybe I'd been in the church, I don't know, six to eight months. I'd heard about this thing called healing, being anointed. Wasn't anything I was particularly interested in. I wasn't sick, so okay. Interesting topic. But one week I began to notice that I uh, was having trouble in my jaws. I don't know what was going on, but as each day progressed, the pain was worse and literally affected my ability to eat. And for some people, it was a, probably a godsend, my ability to even talk. And so this idea about being anointed came to mind. So that next Sabbath, I was, went to the minister. We talked about it. He explained the principle and explained what was going on. I was anointed. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. 
okay, doctor on Monday. So I leave, services ultimately, and about 20, 25 minutes down the road, I lived about an hour and a half from services. And so about 20, 25 minutes down the road, just right out of the blue, I felt this warming sensation come in my jaws. It's kind of like I put a heating pad or something on my face. And in just three or four minutes, the warming sensation left and I had recovered full mobility without pain in my jaws. Those things I know for me were incredibly enlightening and encouraging. And while we haven't talked in depth about the event, I'm sure it was even for Beth's family, the occurrence there. It can be a sign of encouragement to sustain individuals who are bound up in trials that are unforgiving and perhaps in this life are not even solvable. Perhaps long-term health issues, family problems, cultural, gender, or even racial issues. Those type of things though, those type of miracles can go a long way in giving us stability. And then another reason we'll stop here is to make the point with worldly authority about who's really in charge here. We know the stories about Nebuchadnezzar and the episode involving Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. My wife calls them the three amigos. And where they refused to obey his orders that would have them in direct violation of God's law. So what did Nebuchadnezzar do? He did what he always does. He just reacted out of knee-jerk actions and dumped them into a furnace to burn them alive. Well, it didn't go according to plan. In fact, they, the next day, they walked out. And their clothes didn't even smell like smoke. So things worked out really well. Nebuchadnezzar was, strikes me as kind of being a compulsive kind of guy, you know, the kind who uh, uh, acts in haste and repents in leisure, that kind of character. Let's look at Daniel 3, verse 27. Daniel 3, verse 27. And the princes and governors, captains, and the king's counselors being gathered together saw these men upon whose bodies the fire had no power nor was a hair on their head singed and their coats were not changed and they didn't smell of fire. Verse 28, then Nebuchadnezzar spoke and said, Blessed is the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and who hath who had sent his angel and delivered his servants and trusted in him 
and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own. Nebuchadnezzar, in this one instance certainly, got the word of who exactly was in charge, and it wasn't him. And he acknowledged that. Skipping over section A in my notes, we'll move forward to section B, the next page. Brethren, that brings us back to the third category, the quiet miracle. Brethren, it's category three where you and I, as God's family, will live. This is our life. You remember the story about Elijah. Elijah was a very outgoing, yes, we can do it type of personality and prophet. Whatever God wanted him to do, he just did it. Didn't ask questions. He just jumped in and did it. There was a point, and we see in, and I'll just refer to it, 1 Kings chapter 18, where Elijah is put in a situation where he runs afoul of the pagan priests and, and I put prophets in quotes, that uh, Jezebel worshipped. Didn't turn out well for those pagan priests. In fact, by the time Elijah got through with them, they had all died. And so after that, Jezebel really took exception to that event, and she made it known to Elijah that I'm coming for you. Your life is not worth anything because I am going to find you and I'm having your head. That's your future, Elijah, and I'm going to make it so. Well, you know, Elijah had already been through a number of different trials successfully and moved on. And brethren, we really don't, other than that one mention of Jezebel's threats, we really don't have any information about what events actually occurred after that. But they must have been pretty dramatic because we see at a point that Elijah 1 Kings 19, where he uh, had come to a point where he just wanted to end it all. And he just said that he requested for himself 
that he might die. I'm just tired. I have done, and he goes in to detail. When you read through the following verses, I've just done everything I've been asked to do, and I just want a little peace in my life. Verse 9, God asked, why are you here, Elijah? Verse 10, he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, slain your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, am the only one left, and now they're looking for me. Verse 11, and when God said, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountain and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. Then five or six words follow. And this is where you and I live, brethren. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the opening of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Brethren, when we look back over our lives, I suspect each of us will see a train of events that make up a series of those still, small voices. The quiet miracles of our lives, most of which appear totally unrelated, but each one, when taken as a whole, clearly led you to where you may find yourself today. Let me give you an example, a personal thing that happened to me. And something that kind of gives me a little kinship with Elijah, at least with his comments in verse 4. Years ago, and this happened at a time when there was a transition from a church in California and things were deteriorating very quickly there. And I, like a lot of people, looked at that and didn't like what I saw, knew I couldn't stay. And it was kind of complicated because I, I worked for the church, been there 18 years. And so I woke up one day and there was just a series of events to where 
I was losing a church, losing a job, undergoing a divorce, which put me on the verge of bankruptcy. I was going to have to go back to school to retool because the skills I had were not marketable outside of the church context. And other events, brethren, it just wouldn't end. It just seemed like every day the wheels fell off of something else. And I want to tell you, in the middle of all that, I wasn't thinking, oh boy, another trial, and look at what I'm learning. No, I got to a point like Elijah, where God, if I could just go to sleep and not wake up, I would take it. It is that hard. Well, I never went to sleep, and I did wake up. And you know, brethren, I look at that period of time, and this is years later. It took years to put all those pieces together. Years later, when I connected the dots, I began to understand that that period it wasn't the most important time in my life, but it was one of the important times in my life. And frankly, to a large degree, it's led me to where I am today. And perhaps even more than that, the man who entered that series of storms. It's not the same man who came out the other side. It really isn't. So brethren, what is this small, still voice that I keep talking about? What is it in my life and in your life? What is it? Let's look at John 14, verse 16. John 14, verse 16. I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another comforter that you may abide, that he may abide with you forever. Skipping to verse 26. But the comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, that the Father will send in my name, it will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said to you. Brother Skippy had almost one chapter to John 15 verse 26. But when the Comforter is come that I will send to you from the Father even the Spirit of truth that comes from the Father, it will testify of me. Again, another chapter over John 16 7. Nevertheless, I tell you a truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I didn't go away, the Comforter would not come to you. But if I depart, I will send it to you. You know, brethren, that still small voice in our lives is a miracle every day.
that happens in our lives, and it's God's Holy Spirit. Quietly, sometimes subtly, directing, guiding, furnishing us with information, modern terms, with data. It's our own personal AI program designed just for us as individuals. And in the quiet miracles that stretch over time, we find the deepest and the richest miracles of our lives because it's there that our recognition of the role of God's Spirit in our lives and the development of our faith is formed and strengthened. Brethren, you know, we learn how God works. And when we look at the Bible, our Bible is no different than the umpteen million other Bibles setting out there. But when we look at verses like Matthew chapter 5, and we look through all of those verses that follow, 2 through 12 that people sometimes call the Beatitudes, 13 through 16 of chapter 5, where it shows that the church is supposed to set an example. Verses 17 through 20, where Christ confirmed the importance of the law of God. 21 through 30, where controlling anger and lust is our responsibility. 33 through 37, where telling the truth is not a suggestion. It needs to be part of our lives. In 38 through 47, we're even supposed to love our enemies. And all of it being summarized in verse 48, where it says, Therefore you shall be perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Brethren, that still small voice, that miracle in our lives, God's Holy Spirit helps us to understand what it is we're seeing in Matthew 5. We learn why God sets standards. Even Paul, pardon me, even David was quoting in Psalms 95, verse 10. He said, 40 long years I was grieved with this generation and said it is a people that err in their heart and they have not known my ways. In a very powerful verse that just summarizes everything and tells us the importance of God's Spirit. Isaiah 55, verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. 
we learn how, where, and why to apply God's standards. We learn to trust that God knows what he's doing. Paul discussed trials, Colossians 2, verse 1. Colossians 2, verse 1, Paul said, For I want you to know that what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea. And as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches, into the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and to the Father and of Christ. In verse 3, to whom are hidden all of the treasuries of wisdom and knowledge. Brethren, as we've seen in the verses above, it is a miracle of God's Spirit that opens that treasury of wisdom and knowledge. Brethren, going back to our opening, now what does it mean for the 60% of that congregation on that feast day that didn't raise their hands? Are there no miracles in their lives? Brethren, we know that's not true. They may not be obvious. And as we've seen, it may take years for them to fully mature in our understanding of them to finally grow to the point that we recognize them. But brethren, our lives are literally awash in miracles. If we examine our lives from the point that God starts to work with us through His Holy Spirit, we will, as it says in 1 Timothy 3.9, we will hold the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. So, is the age of miracles over? No, brethren. I think we can have confidence. It's not. In fact, it's alive and well in Dallas, Texas, and throughout the world in the lives of God's people. And if we look back over our lives, we'll identify points in time when a quiet miracle cut through the noise and the confusion and spoke to each of us in a small, still voice. 